0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to Tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: From the palmetto swamps to the piney woods to the oak flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bow Hunter Podcast.
2: You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast presented by Scree Gear, performance hunting apparel, performance layering system of gear. We talk about them every week. You've seen a lot uh, of the things that we've shared from Scree and you've heard a lot about them. We've had the risk-free promotion going on, but now we're in November and I know a lot of guys are getting ready to go on their annual rut hunts in the Midwest and different states and, uh... You know, once we all come home from that and the holiday season rolls around, it's kind of it's it's really the meat of deer season in the south, and we start getting a little cooler weather, encourage you to check out the layering option that layering options that Scree offers. We've told you a lot about their ptarmigan, the packable, goose down, insulated outers, uh the hard scrabble works great in most parts of the south. So remember if you if you choose to use the code L A B H at checkout you can get 20% off your first order that doesn't apply to discounted items or bundles because they're already discounted but if you fill your cart individually or you just want to pick up one piece and try it out use LABH code at checkout and get 20% off check them out on social media find out more about their gear there as well as YouTube Instagram Facebook and shop online at screegear.com so We've made it to November, Kyler. You and I are both on the home stretch towards our upcoming Midwestern hunts. Um, we've got a full month of bow season at home in our pocket now. We are getting some it's been a beautiful week. Uh it has been an absolute we we got a cold front the end of last week that made for a real pretty weekend and it has been just Chamber of Commerce kind of days the last three or four days. Seeing a lot of success, a lot of people sharing a lot of success. Um, I know you got some plans going on there. What are you up to? Well, like
3: we talked about earlier today, um, I get uh, I get FOMO pretty bad first week in November, and uh, fear of missing out. If anybody doesn't know what FOMO is, when all my friends or a lot of my friends start headed to Illinois or Kansas, Oklahoma start posting videos of bucks pictures of bucks and uh so i'm gonna i'm my plan i'm leaving tomorrow which is uh, wednesday and i'm gonna do a pre-scouting trip for oklahoma hang a couple cameras really the the plan is to kind of discount places places that we think are good on the map get on the ground and uh compare and real time or in person to what we see on the map and see if it's actually worth hunting see if there's any good signs blah 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 because i don't want to burn the first two days of my trip trying to figure out where we need to hunt i want to start hunting when we get there especially since we're going a little later you know we're going the 11th to the 17th um and uh, i don't want to burn two or three days trying to find deer and then start hunting on the third or fourth day so uh anyway we're gonna leave tomorrow afternoon Probably get there late at night and then scout all day Thursday. Um, and uh, that's the plan so far. And then probably come back Friday or Saturday, real quick turnaround,
2: hang some cams, and then just uh, see where we want to hone in on. That's the plan. Yeah. So, If you're frustrated with your property, the forecast for the season doesn't look too great, or maybe you've just decided it's time to move on and invest in your own property, contact our friend Slade Priest at Southern States Realty a part of the Realtree United Country Hunting Properties Network, the largest network of hunting and recreational real estate experts in America. Nobody in our area sells more, and Slade's not just a realtor. He's not just a real estate agent. He's a passionate outdoorsman that understands what the buyers and sellers need. He knows how to put them together. He knows how to look at a piece of property and put the right people in the right place. Nobody sells more. You've seen him on outdoor TV. You see him on digital media. He spends his life in the outdoors. He's passionate about it and it comes through in the results. If you're in the market, contact our friend Slade Priest, the Hunting Land Man. Huntinglandmanms.com. Check out all the new listings that he's posting on a regular basis some exciting properties. Check them out. Huntinglandmanms.com. com. Um,
3: what about you? I know y'all y'all have a huge huge life event weekend (laughs) son killed his first bow bow kill first bow kill ever right not first bow buck first bow kill
2: the first time the first time he's ever drawn back his bow at a deer and last year was the first year he's ever bow hunted last year was the first year that i felt he was physically big enough to shoot a bow that i was comfortable letting him shoot at a deer with and even mm-hmm. then, it was kind of one of those things where I had a couple spots set up that I was willing to hunt with him, but it was going to have to be, you know, really controlled situation, close shot. Uh, you know, in other words, I was going to have to have a deer eating in a feed pile at 15 yards or I wasn't going to let him shoot at a deer with a bow. He just, you know, he's only 11 years old. Well, he's a big kid, so he's shooting, a, you know, pretty a pretty effective bow at 12. He's as big as me at 12 years old and um, has really put in a lot of time and effort at learning to shoot we did some shooting lessons with Ken at Gotham and that really helped him and uh, got him shooting much better so I felt a whole lot more comfortable not only with his ability to shoot out to 20 or 25 yards and the effectiveness of the equipment because he he gained two and a half inches in draw length since last year you know he's oh, wow. he, yeah he grew that much so he's he's shooting 26 and a half inch draw and yeah, somewhere between 45 and 50 pounds and with today's bows I, i've joked numerous times the bow he's shooting now i didn't have a bow that shot that that good that flat when i was out of college in my 20s you know i mean that's just how far the technology's come so uh not just with the ability for him to hit a target and for him to shoot consistently and and the equipment but also just his his demeanor and his calm, and, and I felt better about his ability to adjust in the stand and make a, you know a, range, a wide range of shots and not just be kind of grounded to a real controlled type of shot, the only thing. So I felt a lot better, and I've talked about it on the podcast so far this season a lot. That's what I focused pretty much my entire month or my entire early season on, on hunting with him. And we we finally... Kyler, we got it done. You did, man. <laughs> <got Nice>. <laughs> so <laughs> um I can honestly say that this whole situation felt like a a, a well uh a one that was well enough uh earned to uh, apply that 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 phrase that I, that I ran about all the time. That's awesome. But um yeah. You know, the the story, the, the, you know, quickly, before we get to our guest, because we've got an amazing guest and a, an amazing uh, topic that we're excited to share with you for this episode. But I'll tell the story real quick. You can see the entire hunt. It was videoed. My digital series with Scree, you can go to their YouTube channel. It was just posted today. You can see the entire hunt. So I'll just give you a brief rundown. We've got, I've got property here at my house in East Feliciana Parish. Um, and, you know, it's it's an average place to hunt deer numbers, deer size, etc. But I've been managing it for six years and it keeps getting better and better. We're doing things the right way I feel like the results are are showing up. So this year I've got three or four nice bucks on camera and a lot more deer just overall. So there's just one particular buck that we started taking pictures of um, probably end of September or maybe right at the first of October and he had a broken main beam that that um, the best way I can explain it, it like splintered in three directions. So it made like a drop time and a kicker. And then the main beam just kind of curled, just kind of dead ends and curls. It's a really unique buck, a really old, mature, nice buck. And of course, um, just the uniqueness of that deer. He had his eye on that deer to begin with, you know I mean? He was like, that's the one I want to kill. Yeah. And, you know, and, yeah, yeah, and we had, and we got a couple others that, that are his size on camera regularly that, that we were after as well. But, um, we this weekend we got the better weather we went in there friday and we were actually hunting on one side of the property where we have not gotten any pictures of that deer i was actually hunting a different um a different spot where i had some other deer on camera and actually saw one of those deer right at dark a uh, really nice eight point and he got to 25 yards but i don't know if he smelled us or if he's seen something he didn't like he didn't really spook he just kind of stopped and did that uh let me just back on out of here the way i came kind of thing you know um so you know he was really disappointed he felt like it was his fault you know oh he saw me move it's something i did and i'm like no baby that's just deer hunting you know that's just that's how it goes you know the deer are smart that's how they grow and get big and uh so the next morning i went to a stand in a hardwood flat that i've had a lot of success on cool mornings with a northwest wind the deer travel through there and there's also a lot of natural browse and forage in that area and it just seems to be a highway area for deer that are transitioning and, and it always seems over the last five or six years on this property that once October kind of comes and goes and we start to get to the end of the month and the first part of November, there's a big swamp on the back side of our place and they use that hardwood area. They transition through there. You know, from the places up around the pines where we've got corn on the ground and we're planting food pots and stuff like that. We get those deer a lot there early season, and then they all start to they end up in that swamp sometime in November. And I thought, well, weather pattern, you know, um, and with the wind the way it was, I didn't I didn't feel comfortable hunting any over any kind of food because I didn't have a good wind direction for any of those spots. And so I said, "That's we'll go sit in that hardwood flat. I, I think it's a good chance we'll we'll see a deer and have a deer in bow range that he he's likely to get a shot at." I wasn't expecting it to be this deer um the only caveat to that is i did get a picture of him for the first time in that flat the night before and i thought well maybe this is what he started doing maybe he's transitioning oh, yeah, yeah. you know and i thought well I mean, in the back of my mind i'm thinking he may be coming back through here in the morning so this may be his transition point we're getting to that point this first you know good cold front and all that 7:45, here he came you know just like clockwork and and um he realized what deer it was you know a good 50 yards or so before the deer got To where he shot him and um you know like i said you can watch it all on video but i'm I'm super proud because again it wasn't a situation where i had a kid there and i got a deer standing still eating in a corn pile or something where i had it real controlled and all that he actually had to draw let the deer clear get into an opening we had to man and stop him and he made a good shot the deer ran 50 yards we watched him crash and that's uh, awesome it was it was really kind of unbelievable for a 12 year old to kill a pope and young class buck the first time he ever drew his bow back and again it wasn't a situation where we had the deer calm feeding in a food plot or something like that this deer was on the move going to bed we had to literally wait for him to step into an opening in the hardwoods we had to stop him and he had to make the shot it was you know all the way through and through exactly what you're learning to do as a bow hunter and he did it perfect so i'm very proud encourage you all to go watch the video it's awesome
3: that's incredible man
2: so well, um
3: i i actually actually i haven't watched it yet i'm gonna watch it on my way home but, but also hadn't really asked you the details of it because i wanted to ask you on this podcast so that it wasn't like the second time i was hearing it you know yeah. um but uh that's incredible i know you had mentioned that it wasn't over a feed pile or something which like you said makes it even better yeah. So, um, and I, and I'm I don't,
2: pumped. I don't want to demean that point either. I, I don't have any problem. If it's legal where you hunt, I don't have any, I use, I have stands over, uh, rice bran and, and feeders and corn piles. I mean, I have stands and, and, and we hunt that way from time to time. Um, I'm not demeaning it at all, but I think anybody that's bow hunted for very long realizes it's a whole lot easier, especially with a, with a new bow hunter or a kid, to shoot a deer that's calm and feeding and doesn't know you're there, that's a whole lot different than having to wait for a deer to walk into an open and in the woods at twenty to twenty-five yards, stop him, settle that pin and, and make an absolute ten ring shot. That's that's a whole nother ball game than a deer that just feeds to a broadside position's calm and doesn't know you're in the world. You know. So
3: so le- let me ask you this then. How what what is what is he hunting with? What do you have what's he his gear?
2: What's your setup for him? So he has an elite ember. Which is elite's kind of lady slash youth bow. It's highly adjustable. It goes way down to like twenty three inch draw, and I think all the way up to thirty, and it goes up to sixty five pounds on the on the on the draw weight. I think so. It's a really highly adjustable bow, but it's a it's pretty good performing bow. He's shooting a um, it's the Easton, uh, what do they call Easton five point nines? Uh, they're the they're the six and a half millimeter carbon shaft. Uh it's kind of just their basic carbon shaft. Um and he was actually shooting a rage broadhead, believe it or not. As much as I talk bad about him, that's what he was shooting. And uh, <laughs> and it didn't go all the way through him, but I don't know that he would have went all the way through a deer that size with anything, given that bow. But he double lunged him. I mean it stuck in the hide on the opposite side. It just didn't punch all the way through. But right. uh Yeah. So and that's that's his gear. He's shooting a rage. For the same reason that a lot of people end up shooting expandables. I haven't had time to to uh to shoot enough fixed position heads to be real comfortable with it and i had a brand new pack yeah. of rage for, for some reason and uh, i wasn't comfortable with a forward deploying broadhead you know given the, mm-hmm. the speed and all i felt the rear deploying mechanical was the way to go and it worked out great and i've often said i think rages are very lethal you just got to make a good shot and, and in this case it sure. did so um That's awesome, man. so yeah um it's, it, it, it yeah, it's a, <laughs> it, you said it as a, like a life event and it kind of is when you do as much hunting and spend as much time with this, with this hobby, sport, whatever, and as much effort and money and time as you put into it, when something like that happens, it really is an event and it's, it's been, it's been a happy time around our house. So, um, I'm excited. We got him to the taxidermy today. So, uh, really excited. hope you'll all go check that out. So... Let's move on, and let's not make our guests wait any longer. Today, on this podcast, I am over the moon excited about this topic. Okay, so we have Dr. Stephen Ditchkoff from Auburn University. He is the, uh, a professor in the School of Forestry and Wildlife Science, and he has done some studies that revolve around the way deer respond to human presence and human pressure in their environment. And so... We're going to talk to him and find out more about that study and what he's learned from that. Our guests every week are brought to you by our friend Brian Chamberlain, the Chamberlain Lending Team with Movement Mortgage. And if you're in need of a residential loan, primary or secondary vacation investment, cash out, rate reduction, renovation for add-ons, any of these kind of needs, contact Brian. Nobody does better. Low credit scores potentially 0% down, and the Movement Mortgage, 42% of their profits go towards charitable organizations through the Movement Foundation, and that sets them apart. Brian is licensed in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, NMLS number 114586, and Movement Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, NMLS ID number 39179. Steve, we, uh, we can't thank you enough for, for taking time to come on the podcast with us. How are you this evening?
1: hey i'm doing great i appreciate the opportunity and um it was hey it was outstanding listening to that story about you and your son you know congratulations to both of you that's a big deal
2: thank you it's it's been um it's been a wild ride uh i'm proud of him and he's i've told people uh a lot really he's since he's been old enough to start hunting with a gun he's always been a good shot turkey hunting he's uh been a good shot with his deer rifle and i and i've I've been impressed with the way he's handled a bow, but you never know, you know, you never know what that first time bow hunter, what it's going to be like when it's, when it's real time, but he handled it well. So
1: it's exciting. It, it, it's more exciting. It's more exciting for you now, probably hunting with him than it is when you're hunting alone.
2: Oh, I, there's, there's not a deer in North America that I could have sat in a stand and gotten a shot at Saturday morning that would have made me any more excited or fulfilled than the hunt that I made with him. That there, there's just not, there's not one bigger, not one better, just not possible. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And, and, and I said it on the video, it's not, it it was October the 30th. It's not even November. We still got a whole season of this. So exciting, exciting. So let's learn a little bit more about you before we get kind of dive off into your research. Um, what kind of, what's your background? You're obviously at Auburn. Are you from Alabama? What's, what's your background?
1: No, uh, I'm not from Alabama. I'm a transplanted Yankee. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but I've been here at Auburn for just about 20 years, um, and I came here, I, I did my Ph.D. at Oklahoma State University, um, <clears throat> working on, actually, you guys could even be familiar with it, the McAllister Army Ammunition Plant in southeast Oklahoma. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, where okay, they had a dream. The, yes. Um, they they dream had so, you know, I had the opportunity to do a lot of, you know, some deer research there during my PhD, had, you know, did did my masters in Maine and um but originally, you know, hailed from Michigan.
2: Okay. Well, that's a that's a deer mecca there. Were you, were you from like the upper peninsula area or what part of Michigan?
1: No, I was actually from lower Michigan. You grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, uh, but you know, an outdoors family. And so every opportunity to go outdoors, whether it be out in the woods, out in the boat, whatever it was, I just, I was fortunate enough to have those opportunities and it just kind of translated into me, you know, chasing my passion, um, you know, to follow what I loved and got into the fisheries and wildlife field and just kind of progressed through through the steps it just seemed like a logical approach to eventually get my PhD and you know I'm fortunate to do what I do today you know I love my job you know I, I teach and I do research and so I love working with the students but you know I love working with white-tailed deer and so I've been you know actively conducting research with white-tailed deer for just shy of 30 years now and um, it's 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 a lot of fun and and I think the great thing about it is it's You know, is to be able to do things like this and come on this podcast and kind of share some of the things we've learned with deer hunters because they're so passionate about it. It's just, it's exciting.
2: Well, we found that every time we're able to have someone from your field uh, on the podcast, and we've had a number from the state of Louisiana, including your colleague, Dr. Collier, um, people really eat that up because it's coming from a totally different place. You know, our observations as hunters and land managers and whatever the the case may be there, uh, our observation from what we experience in the woods, whether we're managing our property or actually out hunting our property, is totally different perspective from where you're coming from, from the research, and it's so valuable. And we had Dr. Collier on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and we were talking kind of specifically about food plot. Uh, strategies and techniques and the do's and don'ts and stuff like that to kind of maximize that for people that are starting to plant their plots and for this season and uh, after the fact uh, I've known Dr. Collier for a while and after after the podcast we were talking he said you need to talk to my buddy Steve and 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 talk about this research he's been doing and I I can only imagine with 30 years in the field (coughs) doing research and 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 teaching in in the field and all that that there's an amazing amount of information that that we would love to tap into but I want to hear uh, you know primarily about this this study and and correct me here because I'm being very very broad uh, or very vague in in terms of I haven't had a, a pre conversation with you about this but as I understand it you've conducted some research that revolves around trying to uh, identify deer behavior when they're when they encounter pressure and and human presence is that somewhat
1: correct yeah that's correct uh, we we've actually done two studies um you know on that and it, it's some pretty pretty interesting data and it, it's altered the way that i approach going into the woods um it's altered my strategies with regards to, to, to chasing gear around and you know obviously you never know whether it's for better or worse but I, I think it improves a lot of people's hunting and i've heard some people that have modified some things they've done and really changed their approach and they said they seem to think it's 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 increased their success rate
2: awesome so let's let's dive off in it uh give us some of the background of this study and and how it got going and you know kind of where you are now with it and kind of the a through z on that
1: well the the first study that we did and i think it's the one that brett's referring to um you know brett was involved in this research that we've been been conducting in south carolina since about 2004 um, and so we've been working on a piece of property over there. That's about 15,000 acres and it's owned by Norfolk Southern railway and, uh, just a beautiful piece of property. And, but it's, it's, it's an area that we have, there's a lot of food plots, a lot of feeders, the majority, fast majority of the hunting is conducted from set stands where they put hunters out in the stands and they're normally hunting over a feeder, that sort of thing. Well, with, with some grants that we received from the South Carolina DNR, uh, we began to examine how deer move relative to hunting pressure, and we had, we collected some data with bucks, we collected some data with does, um, and what we did was, over the course of about six years, and specifically for some of this, we, we looked at um, over, over three years, uh, we put 15 GPS radio collars on adult bucks each year, so over the course of that three years, we had forty. 45 bucks that we radio collared, and these collars collected a location every, I I think these were set up to collect a location every 15 minutes. So from the beginning of the hunting season, and their hunting season begins in in mid-August there in in South Carolina and extends to January 1st, um, we were getting locations on these bucks every 15 minutes. At that same time, what we did is we went to each hunting stand that was within the range of these bucks. And there was this was approximately 80 to 100 hunting stands. Uh, we sat down in those stands and we, we collected some what we considered to be lethal distances. Um, anywhere on the food plot and then anywhere out to 100 yards through the forest where you could see. And we kind of delineated these areas on a map as in, in a computer mapping system, in a GIS system. Um, as areas of vulnerability, where we thought if, if there was a hunter in that stand and a deer stepped into that area, then they could effectively be harvested. And so what we did was we also monitored that every time one of those stands was hunted, we kept track of that. And so we went back in and began analyzing the data at the end of the study. And what we found was every time some a stand was hunted, it was about five or six days, or for about five or six days afterwards, the probability that one of our bucks would step into that area decreased significantly. So just the actual presence of a hunter, not the fact that they pulled the trigger on a deer, these hunters were not getting out and walking around, they were dropped off at the stand, they were picked back up. But for five or six days afterwards, once they hunted a stand, the probability of those deer stepping into that area of vulnerability during daylight hours dropped significantly.
2: Wow. So was there any, what, was there any data in this data set that, uh, I guess, hinted towards whether or not the hunters encountered any of these deer during these hunts?
1: no there was there was no data like that um and so we have we have no data on whether or not they encountered the deer whether or not the deer came up on them but essentially what we believe is happening is 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 you know you guys talked a little bit about disturbance um you you mentioned it you know kind of in the warm-up to there to this to this podcast is you know i felt very strongly about this is every time we set foot in the woods we are leaving a scent trail we are creating some sort of disturbance, even if we're the most quiet individual, we're sneaking in, whatever it is. When we go walking into the stand, we are leaving a trail that who knows how many deer are going to encounter during the, those nighttime hours, you know, and how many times they're going to cross our trail. And that's what I think is happening. Either that or that scent cone that's going down range, deer starting to figure out, there's somebody there. I'm not real comfortable with that spot for the next little bit. And we know that those deer have encountered hunters in these locations in previous years, these are the same stand locations, the same stands, all of that thing. And they're essentially, you know, I believe that these deer are essentially building a a, a map of, of, of potential risk. You know, that's an area where I encounter humans. You know, it seemed like it's been okay, but then all of a sudden there's a human in there again. And it's like, yep, I need to stay away from there for a little while. And so that's what we were seeing is, is the, the probability of deer coming to that stand if somebody was going to hunt it a second day or a third day in a row goes down significantly. So what I've walked away from that is is I don't hunt stands two days in a row. I try and go hunt different places. Um, I'm leaving disturbance whether I pull the trigger or not.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: That's, that's really
3: interesting. So uh, just to kind of dive in a little deeper into that, y- y'all were essentially planting people in stands but was there ever any actual active hunting going on during these during this research or was it always just a very controlled drop off here you were here from this time to this time and then you were tracking um tracking the buck movement afterwards
1: no these were actual deer hunters um, okay, so for gotcha. deer hunters, they were probably being being dropped off about a hundred yards from their stand, where and they'd never been there. They were novice hunters, but somebody they drop them off and say, okay, if you walk a hundred yards down this trail. you you know, you're going to see the stand on the edge of that food plot. So go walking in there, climb up in your stand, and stay there until we come and pick you up. And then they would pick them up right there. The only difference in this hunting scenario was, whereas you'll go out hunting, you might have a little more liberty to walk around. Um, This was a little more controlled with regards to, there was less disturbance created than what you would probably have in your normal hunt. Um, Just because they were being dropped off about 100 yards and then being picked up. If they did shoot a deer, they're supposed to wait until, um, one of one of the employees until they're picked up. Then they go get the deer with the employee. That way, they don't have people that aren't familiar with that area, while getting lost in the woods.
2: Sure. Did- now, um, go ahead. No, you go
1: ahead.
3: So, um, the I'm trying to I want to tr- try and create a visual because this is something that I, I feel people are not very self aware of. Um, a few things. Number one, pressure can be defined by. Uh, a dozen different uh, actions that we have but essentially it's any disturbance at all even as simple as your presence just entering a hunting zone or going to a deer stand is hunting pressure it doesn't always have to be tracking a deer 500 yards at night with a spotlight doesn't always have to be pouring food on the ground and taking a side-by-side into the middle of a food plot or checking cameras pressure is literally as simple as walking am i correct is that what you're saying ground uh, scent is what they were responding to a lot of times
1: i I, I believe so i believe our interpretations of what disturbance is to deer is different than what's actually true um you know i know a lot of hunting clubs won't allow you to shoot does on food plots until the last couple days of the season because they don't want to create any disturbance i've always felt that that's silly i don't think gunshots disturb deer I mean, if, if, if that deer's right there 50 yards away and there's four deer and you shoot one, yeah, it's a loud bang. I think it's going to disturb those deer. But these deer walk around and they hear gunshots all season long. I don't think gunshots in and of themselves disturb deer a whole lot. I, agree. I think the presence of humans disturbs deer. I think and, – and, and the way they detect presence is generally by smell. And we – bow hunters experiences probably more than anybody we get we're getting in there at the start of the season before there's a lot of gun hunters how many times have you seen a deer from your stand walking right up your scent trail following it one direction or the other we're leaving a scent trail all the time as hard as we work rubber boots we're, we're using scent dispersal you know equipment that, that we've purchased it's impossible i mean and these are animals that are designed to to detect predators and sometimes we, we do a good enough job to cover our scent or we set up with the wind right, but you know, we forget what these, these deer do for a living. I mean, they stay alive and Absolutely. we're, 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 I think we're extremely clumsy in the woods. Um, I, we have no idea about scent because our, our, our sense of smell is extremely weak. And I just think that the, the, that we we leave a scent trail out there that we're not aware of. And I've always just pictured if I walk in one time and I, I make a long walk, let's say, and I don't want to take my truck or four-wheeler in and I walk a half mile into this stand. How many deer in the next 12 hours or however long my scent is, stays on those leaves or against those, you know, you it's one thing to wear rubber boots, but there's there's twigs brushing against your pants and all of these things. You're leaving you know sent out there how many deer mm-hmm. w- in the next two three six hours will have detected that you were there you know was it one ten fifteen you know and then if they cross your trail several times then they think there's a bunch of people out there
2: there there's so many directions that this, that this can go i want to i want to throw a couple of things out there that i've heard um and that i kind of believe as it pertains to this and i'm curious you're response and and your response really kind of based off of what you've learned in the field mm-hmm. doing these kind of studies and so so one going back to what you talked about with the gunshot I've, I've had a lot of of older experienced hunters in my life that that I that I really respect their opinions based off of their success and their experience in the field you know kind of talk about that and and what you hear a lot is you know a deer doesn't have the cognitive abilities that we do. So, how does a deer know the difference between this shot and that shot? How does a deer know the difference between a, a crack of thunder and lightning and a, and a rifle shot? You know, so uh, th- there's obviously that. And, and so I think we touched on that a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, um, with that being said, the up close and more personal experience that a deer has when somebody shoots at it or at it or at a deer in its presence with a bow, you know, uh that's obviously very different. They don't know what that is either, but that's a little bit more personal. I'm curious what you think about that. And also, I've often said this on this podcast in different scent discussions, and I believe this wholeheartedly. I think deer are curious animals. And I think that the best thing that you can possibly do is to is to do whatever you can to be completely undetected. But I think that when it comes all the way down to the nuts and bolts of it, the 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 detergent, the the smell of, of food, the smell of the inside of your truck, all of those things, you don't want the deer to to, to, to recognize that as a foreign scent, but what the problem is is you. When they smell you, that's the problem. You know, I think we people get all wrapped up in um, these foreign smells that get on them. And, yeah, those things might be a, 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 an alarming key to a deer. But the ultimate problem is when they smell you, your hair, your skin, and you, the being, the predator that you are. Uh, what, what are your opinions about those things?
1: You know, I, I think you raise a good question. And, and I don't know if I have an answer to that. <clears throat> um, you know, I know I've been around people that some people, they just get winded all the time. I think some of us smell stronger than others, and as a result, we're more easily detected or whatever. I've always had been very fortunate with deer walking downwind and not being detected for whatever reason. I don't think I'm anymore, I, I don't think I keep myself any more clean. I don't think I prepare any more than anybody else. I just think that that's just a natural occurrence. Some people struggle with it more than others. Um, but, you know, I, I try and minimize everything that I can, you know, the scent that I have, but... I don't buy any special products. You know, I I keep my stuff in a separate closet. I'll throw it on before I go hunting. I try not to use, I try to use unscented detergent. Um, I try and do a few little things. But at the end of the day, I think whatever makes a, a hunter confident is the most important thing. You know, if I'm going to the woods confident, then I'm paying more attention to what I'm doing. I've got greater attention to detail and where I'm stepping. I'm paying more attention to when I'm in the stand to what's going on around me and I'm not having something slip up on me. I think whatever a hunter's doing that makes them confident, whether it be scent control, whether it be certain types of equipment, whether it be certain types of practice, I think that's one of the most important things that hunters can do. And if a hunter has the ha- or is in a habit of doing certain things and they believe in it, they are going to be a better hunter for it. Hunting
2: season is here. That fall weather is upon us. If you've had some success or you're expecting to and you need a taxidermist, contact our friend Brian Anders at the Taxidermy Shop. Located at 2582 Highway 48, Liberty, Mississippi. Conveniently located right between Centerville, Liberty, and Gloucester. Whether you're chasing bucks and ducks in the fall, big gobblers in the spring, or you land that trophy fish, give our friend Brian Anders a call at 601-248-6945. No job is too big or too small. Brian offers quality work in a timely manner, family-owned and operated. If you need a taxidermist, give our friend Brian Anders a call at the taxidermy shop, 601-248-6945.
3: So, so what, he's, what he's calling confidence, I've always called consideration. Um, I, I believe that the outside of weapons, that the, the absolute biggest, differentiator between a, uh, a a bow hunter and any other type of hunter is the fact that we kill things 40 yards and under other people and, and we in our environment and how we treat it if you will or how we uh, what we um, introduce to it can can be the uh killers of our success um and so i've always called those considerations everything that you said where how you step um even something like walking with a red light or a green light through the woods versus a white light, um, or, you know, haphazardly walking or making sure you don't step on as many sticks as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, I I actually, I I actually want to talk just for a quick second more about ground scent, because we've actually never talked about this and there's something that has been rolling around my head for years. Um, number one, uh, I'm sure that you've seen both of y'all have seen a deer react to something that you have physically come in contact with. Uh, or maybe you broke a limb. Maybe you rubbed. Um, maybe you rubbed up against. Um, maybe you rubbed up against a, uh, a tree or a bush or something like that. And you have seen a deer on a good clip walking, and then they hit that and they stop. And just, I mean, absolutely, you are. You don't have to be down upwind from them, but you're done. You're busted. They knew they they figured you out. Even though rubber boots are "quote unquote" scent free, I've always kind of laughed at that because there's few things that smell stronger than a brand new pair of rubber boots out of the box, right? Uh, like lacrosse or, or any kind of rubber boot whatsoever. But I don't actually think on boots and footwear that it is the actual. Rubber touching the plant that matters so much. I think it is more of the fact that your foot is creating a, a diaphragm pump inside of that boot, and every step that you take, you are pumping out sock odor up and over and out the side of your boot. And I think that—that's how I visualize ground scent. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers right now. Um, that is what I feel gets us busted. I don't think it's the rubber smell. I think it's your socks or your sweaty feet from your mile long walk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also, what helps me visualize how I enter the woods, how I enter a hunt area or a stand, I kind of pretend that my scent is like this bright blue smoke bomb going off behind me. And it's sticking, if you will, to everything that I come in contact with or come very close to, especially on dewy mornings, wet mornings, things like that. Um, and so that's what I wanted to ask you about next. Have, y'all, have you ever done any research at all on – or it doesn't have to be research per se, but have you ever even considered the difference between walking on dry ground versus walking on wet ground?
1: You know, I, I think it's a phenomenal question. I mean, the, the quick answer is no, uh, we haven't done anything. And I think it's beyond the scope of our abilities to technologically to, to probably do that, at least with regards to the tools that we generally use as wildlife biologists. Um, sure. But it's I mean, I think it's I, 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 I tend to think the same way that you are. Um, You know, whether it be, you know, the the, the foot pump and creating, you know, odor coming from your socks or stuff that you're leaving, we are creating disturbance. I think that's the biggest thing that people need to understand. And these deer have the ability to detect it. Um, And so I don't hunt the same place twice. I have. And and you guys talked about a 40 yard range. Um, I was hunting with a recurve. So Oh, yeah.
3: You're even shorter. (laughs) 20 yards max
1: yeah yeah you know no i'm not that good 15 yards you know 15 I, I, yards. You per- yeah and so it's it, it it's a challenge um it's definitely fulfilling when you're successful but you know the biggest the biggest thing i can do you know if i'm hunting with a recurve is not go to a spot that I was before, because it's, it's hard enough to get, to, to to get a deer to 15 yards. It's extremely difficult to get a deer to 15 yards when they're walking in and saying, okay, this is an area where humans are. And so if I can get it to a spot that nobody's been, that nobody's been before, but nobody's hunted there, you know, in weeks to months or that season, then I feel my probability of success is far greater. And once I have that one or two hunts, I'm done absolutely you know and even the second hunt it, you know things go downhill yeah have you have you always been a traditional hunter um no it's it's i had i had hunted a little bit with a compound never you know i had successfully got one you know with a compound in michigan when i was in college and but then i started hunting with a recurve when i was spent so much time there at mcallister and it, they're just so much fun to shoot that's just kind of what we had you know the way it evolved um
3: so so let me let me ask you as a quick tangent. While you were working there, I was going to ask you, were there any limitations to you um, being able to hunt that property? Did you also have to draw or did you kind of have free reign since you were a faculty or since you were a we, staff?
1: We, we were fortunate. We were kind of treated like VIPs. Uh, and the way that works is there's some hunt volunteers that have some designated areas that they can hunt. And so we had the opportunity to go out. When, when we weren't working because we were actively collecting data from deer. We were gutting all the bucks that were shot there. We, we had radio collar deer we were following around and we were we were burning the candle at both ends. But when we had an opportunity in a morning or an evening, we had an area of the base that hunters could not go into um, where we could where we might have a stand that we hung the week before and we would slip out and and, and get that opportunity. So I was really, really fortunate to be able to do that because it's an amazing place and I encourage any bow hunter. That, that, I to, to to look into this, because I think this is the best population of white-tailed deer in the country that the public yeah. can hunt. It's um, it's tremendous, just tremendous. So, so um, a few of my friends
3: are putting in for it. Garrett Ramsey, one of my close friends, he's hunting it this season. Um, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think he drew out for it last year, but they didn't have the hunt because of COVID. I, I think that's true. I'm not positive. Um, but anyway, he's going maybe next week, I think he's, he'll be up there and I follow him on Facebook. Uh, the, the, the what, what's the, what's the name? I only know it as McAllister Ammunition Plant or something. What's the official
1: name of it? That's, I mean, that's McAllister Army Ammunition Plant. That's it. Okay. So yep.
3: it, it is, um, I mean, you're talking about guys with recurves and longbows killing 180s two you know 200 inch deer occasionally um it's it's incredible um really high and what's even cooler is you uh you can see all the data a of number of hunter attempts uh deer taken and they posted something last week and it was something like a 35 percent success rate um out of all the hunters that they had 40 of them killed deer and it was only like 120 or something when they um that they were hunting at the time. And um, it's it's a really cool property. That's about, so I hunted Trat a few years ago and I kind of, well, I said, it's the most fun I never want to have again because I wasn't great at it. Um, but that's the only place that could get me back into hardcore traditional bow hunting again, because it's that's good. like winning the lottery. It's like a golden ticket in um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory.
1: It is. It's It is, it's definitely a great place, great place
3: so sorry i got distracted by 200 inch deer <laughs> with your recurve um so so the reason why i asked you about wet ground versus dry ground i just want to wrap this up and clarify is because i've heard from numerous dog trackers that um if the ground is wet or dewy after a deer has been shot that they can actually the dogs can pick up the scent you e- follow it more easily so i i, I I figured it wasn't something possible to scientifically research with um, with instruments and whatnot, like you mentioned. But I've always wondered, even that could translate into this other question. If you scout before a rainstorm, does the rain wash your scent away? And that's not rhetorical.
2: you know. I, I don't know. Well, well, um, what I wonder is, so if we just look at the data that you do have – do you feel like if you if you took the time to drill into that data would you see a variance in time frame with weather? In other words, if you had a week of dry weather, are the deer avoiding that area longer than if you had rain events in and around the time the person was there is is there less is that disturbance minimized? Could you could you then maybe have the theory that okay, if we have rain and that happening in and around the same time frame, the scent and human presence is diminished enough that it doesn't affect the deer as greatly, as opposed to, you know, the hunter hunts there and we have dry conditions and that, that presence lingers longer.
1: It, it, it that, that, that's a good question. And we don't have those data. Um, you know, my guess is the very natural variability in the data, it's probably going to be difficult for us to, to detect any effect. Um, If we did that, plus number two, it's South Carolina, which is like Louisiana. This is low country, South Carolina. It's just like Louisiana. It's always humid and wet in some some capacity. And so it's I I don't know if we'd be able to find anything, uh, but it's a real good question. You know, but ultimately, you know, you know, I I, I think the biggest takeaway is and, and, and I'll share another example with you here in a moment is just this disturbance. It's the biggest thing I try and, you know, tell deer hunters is just go hunt a new spot. Just go sit in a new spot. You know, during gun season, I, I, I hunt on the ground. I always just go hunt a new spot. Um, and I just kind of wonder, I wonder if the deer are moving here. I wonder if the deer are moving there. I developed some favorites over the years for the property I hunt, but I'm always moving to someplace different every time I go out just because of that disturbance. And it really, really helps. So, um, I know
2: – that there's people listening to this that are that are going to develop some form of the question I'm about to ask, and and I wanna I wanna preface it by saying there's an exception to everything, and you're talking about statistical ma- majorities, right? Data that lends itself to um, an expect an expectation, not necessarily that a deer never entered it correct like it's it's it's, it's it's more of a majo- the majority of the data shows this sure. there's an exception to every rule yeah you and your buddy killed bucks back to back days on the same stand it happens obviously we're not talking about the exceptions but with that being said if if you're a guy who is hunting a let's say 4 to 500 acre piece of property and you got limited areas you can hunt and multiple people hunting those areas um you know and i experienced this myself what does the data suggest about certain areas just tend to remain better than others i mean you know uh, maybe you don't see the mature buck as often but you don't see the mature buck anywhere you go as often because that's why he's a mature buck right i mean he's just he avoids detection so the guy who is hunting the same stand much more frequently and saying you know well my my deer sighting um, what I'm seeing doesn't doesn't go along with the 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 data that you're presenting. What what do you think the the potential variances could be, or what what could be some of the answers to that?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I, I love hunting with those people because I tell them you just keep hunting right there, yeah. and because and I and I'll move all around you. But it, it's <laughs> there's areas that are natural deer, deer travel corridors. And, you know, I've got some favorite places that, that, that I've developed for hunting that I just, I know that we're going to see deer moving through there. Um, And it's tough, you know, 500 acres is is, is a lot of property. You know, if I was a landowner, I'd be thrilled to have 500 acres. Um, But, you know, if you've got several people hunting at it and they're fairly active hunters, it's tough not to create a lot of disturbance. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have as hunters is trying to figure out how to reduce disturbance. Because it's one. Cause every time we go out there, cre- it creates a data point for those deer to figure out what we're doing and to figure out what they shouldn't do. Um, so this may not be a popular answer, but I reduce my my days hunting. Well, I I do, I, this,
2: do, I do the same. So you know, the if, if the Rock conditions road aren't road right, if the conditions aren't right, don't go. Yeah, that's just don't go. That's my number one advice to anybody. Ask me, and if anybody asks me for my opinion, that. Something in, in something in and around that is is generally my number one advice is you 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 know I mean don't beat your head against the wall be smart you know so, just you know l-
1: we're we're, we're, we're here in the south and we're extremely fortunate to have very long seasons mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: you know you. you it's it's a very long hunting season it's pretty conducive from a weather perspective you know we're not going out there in northern minnesota trying to hunt the late bow season and just absolutely freezing or, or whatever it is you know we're pretty fortunate here here in the southeast um and so you know there's a lot there's, there's a lot of folks out there who love to go sit out there in the woods and they really enjoy it and, and that that's a part of it And go do it just just understand that you can you can improve your success by reducing the number of times that, that, that you go out in the field. Um, the hard part I think gets where you go someplace to hunt that's special and you've got a three day hunt. you know it's not like you can have you know if you're going to McAllister you've got a you hunt Friday, you have Saturday and you hunt Sunday morning it's a two and a half day hunt. And you've got one stand, and you're hunting from the, ground, you know, essentially from wherever you park your car, and that's the one spot where you've got to do all your hunting from. So it's not like you can have all these alternative hunting stands everywhere. And so, it's a challenge to try and get out there, reduce your disturbance, yet hunt effectively for two and a half days or three days. That's those are some of the challenges that I find when I'm out hunting some new spot.
2: Um, uh, go ahead, Todd. What, I think you were going to say what, something. What,
3: i was I was going to kind of reinforce what, what you said earlier because you've said you've said that many many times Locke will hold out for the right days um uh, I've heard him say this for years, he's probably been saying that longer than I've known Locke. um and that's something that um is an excellent game plan when you really fully know all the dimensions of the property and even possibly the deer herd that you're hunting, and especially if you're on a small parcel or even a few hundred acres, you can ruin it, if you will. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Can you give us your definition of a wrong day? What is a day that you would say, you know what, I'm not going to go in there today? Kind of paint that picture for us, if you don't mind.
1: Well, I think that's a great segue into this other study that we did. Because my okay. answer to you, the wrong day is Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Really? Um, Interesting. Literally. It, you mean you mean actual days of the week? I do. I do. And, and here's why. Oh. Um, wh- this is another study. I, I, I referenced two studies that we did. So we did another study here in Alabama. And this study was funded by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. And so they wanted us to take a look at deer movement and deer <coughs> survival to – collect data to assist them with the development of their um, deer population models and try and forecast, um, better manage their deer herd here in Alabama. And so we did this about five years ago, and we had both bucks and does with GPS radio collars, the same as we did in that South Carolina study. And we did this on both public properties and on private properties. The private properties were essentially conglomerations of leased lands, you know, over 5,000, 10,000 acres. So these were all these were all areas that were hunted fairly heavily, um, received fairly, you know, consistent hunting pressure, that sort of thing. And so, but just your, your standard sorts of properties. We took a look at deer movement patterns relative to day of the week. And what we found was extremely interesting. There was without question, we are educating these deer. So if you were to consider, if you were to cons- write out your days of the week, Monday through, su- Monday through Sunday on a sheet of paper, essentially what we found was on Friday and Saturday, we had our optimal deer, our, our greatest deer movement. And let's say it was just peak during daylight hours on those days. By Sunday, deer movement during the day had dropped about 30% or more. By Monday, it had bottomed out. So we may be at a level 10 on Friday and Saturday. It's dropping to a level seven on Sunday, and it might be down at a level three by Monday during the day. It stayed down on Tuesday, started to recover back up to a level seven on Wednesday, and by Thursday, it was back to normal. And what that we believe, we looked at this over about a seven or eight week period. We can, we combined all of those data. And it's not that the deer know the day of the week. It's the fact that there's a bunch of hunters in the woods that are getting out there Saturday. They're still hunting on Sunday. And those deer are still all, and there's, the deer are really starting to figure it out on Sunday. It's like, oh my goodness, there's everybody in the world's here. They're all shook up on Monday and Tuesday and finally Wednesday saying, okay things need seem to be cooling off and they begin to start to head back toward their their normal patterns which we saw on thursday so if it's just a regular piece of property where everybody's out there i'm not going on monday or tuesday i'm trying to go on thursday or friday
2: that i mean that's extremely logical because just about anywhere you go if you look at a regional approach whether it's um a chunk of public land, or it's a chunk of, of of mixed use private properties. Maybe you've got, you know, three or four properties that all connect, and different groups of hunters hunting each one of them. Obviously, Friday and Saturday are your most active days throughout the season. Everybody hunts on the weekends. We're, you know, weekend warrior, the, the the moniker. So, that's that's really that's really interesting. I guess the only way you you overcome that. And you could challenge that data set was if you had a large enough piece of property where you knew there was no pressure on Saturday. Sure. Yeah. Uh,
3: I do have one one thing that I want to a- ask you, or almost like a point of clarification. Um, when you are seeing the deer react to pressure, are you seeing them move into another area? Are you, or are you seeing their movement reduced to? very few yards per day or per or per hour even because um, i know some of like msu does uh like a crepuscular study where they're uh, they are trying to gauge um, expected movement versus actual movement and graph that out over time etc cetera, etc cetera. so are you are you saying that the deer are simply not coming out of their bedding When there's increased pressure or are you physically seeing them go
1: away from from that area? Well, we did not look at the movement. We did not look at where they were in these studies. Okay, but what we looked at was. The rate of movement, how far they're moving, that sort of thing, how active were they? during those daylight hours and when i'm saying daylight hours i'm counting all the daylight but the majority of that is is the crepuscular period two hours after sunset two hours before sunrise or, or i'm sorry two hours after sunrise you know the, the last two hours of daylight first two hours of daylight that sort of thing that's when we're seeing the vast majority of that movement but really we're taking a look at are they moving during those periods
2: so going back to the the, the, the first study because what Kyle just asked, I had a, a kind of a similar question, but I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna formulate the question a little differently. So if we visualize this area of vulnerability that, that you guys had mapped out with, with your GIS system, so if we picture that and we overlay it over your data, do do you know or or did you make note of are the deer in the days following the disturbance? The deer don't enter that area is it because the deer don't move at all or because they they go nocturnal or is it because they avoid that area on the map they're still up on their feet they're still moving they're just not entering that area
1: correct they're not entering that area
2: so they're not Uh actually locking down they're just avoiding an
1: area in that study in south carolina we we weren't taking a look at whether or not they were locking down or not we don't i don't i don't believe they were it's a it's a different type of pressure at that location um because there these individual stands may not be hunted for you got fifteen thousand acres and there's a lot of country out there for these deer to move through without being disturbed but if you go take a regular weekend hunt um on a hunt club or on a wildlife management area there's people walking all over the place and there's disturbance all over and and they they're essentially turning those deer nocturnal i don't think those deer are going nocturnal in that original study but they but but they are avoiding that specific area where they encountered disturbance so what
2: I, i'm curious to both of your um, reactions to this but what keeps going through my mind as i try to visualize What's happening, what's playing out over a landscape and i and I even take it away from the large fifteen thousand and put it into the more uh normal maybe thousand or five hundred or even a couple hundred acres. so if you combine the two studies that you're talking about and you take a look at at what's happening on the landscape during an average hunting season in in an average area, so you've got the deer that are being more or less I use the word trained but they're being educated to avoid certain areas of vulnerability based off disturbance. And then they're also being trained or educated in certain day patterns in which there's increased presence all around. And so what kind of circus roller coaster are we putting the deer through? And by the time you get to the middle or the later part of the season, how can you predict anything? Because now – they're trying to avoid these days because the pressure's been so high, and at the same time, they're also avoiding certain areas that, that the vulnerability um, study shows is, is, is making them avoid these areas specifically and completely. Like, how, how do you then, as a hunter, how do you then figure any of it out? Especially on a smaller piece where they don't you don't have that far to go, and maybe they don't either because the other side of there is a neighborhood or whatever.
1: I, I, I think there, I think it's an awesome question. I don't and, I, and I'll be honest with you. I don't have the answers, um, but I, I, I tend to think of it in this way. deer responding to what we do. And so we have the potential to positively or negatively affect what they do or reduce the, the degree to which we negatively impact what they do or how we alter their behavior in a perfect world. Their behavior is not altered at all. Just understand that we are altering their behavior in some form of fashion, and they're responding to some disturbance. Um, it, it, combining those two things, I've got you know I'm an understand to say there's only so much I can do. Um, I, I, I'm not a guy that that's I don't spend a lot of time worrying about prepping for a hunt or anything like that. It just it takes the fun out of it for me. Um, where the next person really enjoys the preparation. You know I just I want to go out there sit in a stand. Um, you know, I, I, I go out there and do a little scouting where I think I'm going to have a better chance, better odds of being there, of, of seeing a deer that's not disturbed. And sometimes, you know, you're just kind of forced to hunt some of those areas, you know, again and again. But it's, I think, I think every situation is unique. I think every individual listening to this podcast and every deer hunter has a unique scenario um, in terms of what their property is how much pressure it receives and the pattern of that pressure. But I think the biggest thing we can do is kind of look in the mirror and say, okay, if I am creating disturbance, if I can accept that I'm creating disturbance, let me under try and just understand what disturbance that is. And maybe how can I minimize it or how can I mix it up a little bit so that I'm not easy to pattern. Um, I, I I said it early on, I think most deer hunters don't understand the degree to which they disturb deer. That we think about if they see us, disturbances when we're actively there, um, when we pull the trigger on a gun, or when they see us. But I think it's, I think the disturbance is created after we're gone. Um, and just by having been there, I think that the, the, the disturbance, you know, scenario still exists and i think that's the biggest thing you know food plots where's our favorite place to take our buddies when we're showing them our hunting property we drive them to the food plot and we get out and walk around and look at it in the middle of the day so we don't disturb the deer but we just we just drove around the food plot blue diesel fuel all over the top of it you know exhaust we walked around out there how many deer were bedded that hurt us that were 100 yards away um it's just those sorts of things that i think we we have habits of doing that are you know really really kind of negatively impacting our success you know how many of us use four-wheelers i don't use a four-wheeler i think a four-wheeler is an alarm clock you know how Mm -hmm. many of us have a have a squeaky gate at the front of the property that the deer goes ah, they're here you know just just little things that you know we may not normally think of i think could you know drastically improve our you know our success rates
2: Kyler used the word consideration, and that's that's a good way to put it. I I have a um, so I have a thought that I, I this kind of thing has come up in a lot of different conversations as well. You hear it deer camp and all that kind of thing, and we've actually talked to a lot of people, um, in in different kind of varieties of this topic about deer behavior that ha- has hinted towards this, and I'm curious in your um, time in the field and, and and the data that you've looked at in these different studies what how you would uh how would you would think of this so a deer obviously we actually had someone make the comment recently that if you worked at it long enough and you and you tried and you did it long enough you could train a deer to jump through a flaming hoop if if yep. the, if the reward on the other side was was good enough being food or whatever so with that being said what, what do you think – how do you think that, the, like, the research that you've done obviously wouldn't be applicable in this situation, but, but based off of just general deer behavior studies that you've been privy to and that you've studied. So when you take the scenario of the property where – and this could even be public land as well um, – where there's, where there's consistent and patternable disturbance. In other words, the farmer rides and checks his fence every day. The, the members of the hunting camp go twice a week and, and check their feeders and their game cameras, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the disturbance becomes kind of clouded to the deer as to whether this is someone in the woods hunting or is this just the normal thing that I hear on a regular basis? Do you think that deer by nature, um, do they become more, more uh, I guess, Uh, adapted to certain types of disturbance as, as opposed to others?
1: Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. I, I I think, I think deer associate certain types of disturbance with danger, but other types of disturbance, it's like, well, I'm just going to keep an eye on you. You know, you can drive a, you know, certain time of the year you can drive, you know, tractors not going to bother a deer, you know, they're, they're used to those tractors out there all the time. They may not sit in the corn and, you know, and let it run them over. But it, it's, it's not necessarily a disturbance to them that they associate negatively. If you go into suburban areas, and we've done some work on, on deer here in Auburn, we actually dart off people's back porch while they're grilling. Um, those deer are used to coming up there, and there's, there's a dis- level of disturbance there, but they don't associate it with danger. And so I think every place is a little bit different in terms of what that disturbance is. Um, is, you know, there's a, there's a guy... A place where we high fence, or we've done some some research for years, and he's got a golf cart. Well, it's quiet. Those deer run like the wind from that golf cart. You know, I see more deer driving in a truck than than when we're riding with you know with him in that golf cart, Um, just because of their association with that. That's what he takes out deer hunting, and so I just think kind of mixing it up, and understanding there's some things that are disturbance and some things that aren't. Trying to figure out. What, what is disturbance in your situation? What is it that you do that's disturbance? The next hunter is doing something different. Our presence out there during hunting season, I think, is disturbance because it's a change in pattern. How much time do we spend in the woods during the summer? No. None. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's, it's miserable out there. Um, but all of a sudden, we start getting antsy and we start putting out game cameras. We start filling feeders. We're planting food plots. But in this, I think this is the other part, the other half of this that we really haven't talked about is one is the disturbance that they're responding to, but the other part is patterning and educating them because that buck that we want to shoot has been out there for five years. That buck has seen all of your previous hunting locations and has documented humans at those locations. You know, and I know you from a podcast perspective, you know, you're catering to bow hunters, but we all gun hunt sometimes. You know, how many times have you sat in a shooting house on a food plot and you watched a deer walk in? The first thing they do is look at that shooting house. Yeah, because they're used to people being there. That is the point of the focal point of disturbance that they've identified over the years that that's where their risk is. And, and, And so I think, you know. You mentioned it when you were describing this hunt with your son. You've got these places that you tend to go to. Those deer are patterning you. Um, It's not to say you can't be successful at those locations, but, you know, we have patterns that we follow that these deer are, they pick up on to some degree. And the deer that we're actually trying to get is the one that's seen those spots longer than the rest of them. Um you know there's there, there, there's some colleagues that I spoke with year 15 years ago that were this was back in the QDMA days where they were everybody was just you know how many does should you shoot and say well you need to shoot everyone you see plus a few more more and so they were just shooting the snot out of does trying to get their population level down and after 3 years they could hardly shoot, they could hardly get a deer to kill but what they did that year was they actually mapped to their hunting pressure and you, you've, you've seen these maps of elevation where darker, you know, it's, it's like an elevation map. Darker colors mean greater elevation or greater concentration of pressure, whatever it is. And that next year, all they did was go hunt the areas that they'd never hunted before. They tripled their hunting, press, hunting success just by switching s- spots that they hunted next year.
2: Hey, guys, I want to take a minute. To tell you about the newest supporter of our podcast, Freebird Coffee Company. Freebird Coffee is a Louisiana based small business and it's veteran owned and operated by three lifelong friends that love the great outdoors as much as they love great coffee. All three guys are big hunters and outdoorsmen and part of the Louisiana bow hunter community, with one of them still serving our country as active duty military. They specialize in roasting small-batch, 100% organic, single-origin, rainforest-alliance-certified coffee. Their coffee is a small-batch roasted, so it doesn't sit on the shelves for months like many of the big-bag coffees. This guarantees its freshness and gives it a taste that separates it from the rest. Freebird offers three different roasts, a medium roast, a French roast, and a high-caffeine roast, all in unique, eye-catching, outdoor-branded packaging. Freebird Coffee Company also offers a line of apparel and merchandise, and you can check them out at FreebirdCoffee.com. Currently, Freebird Coffee is distributed online only. However, they're looking to get into stores and expand expand their presence. So if you own a store or you know someone who has a store and would like to carry Freebird Coffee, reach out and get in touch with them. I can tell you my wife and I are both big coffee drinkers and we brewed a pot of the French roast recently and I was very impressed. So check them out online at FreebirdCoffeeCompany.com and follow them on Instagram at FreebirdCoffeeCO and use the discount code FREEDOM for 10% off your purchase. Freebird Coffee, the best damn coffee in the world. It's almost november and i cannot wait to head up to southeast kansas and chase big bucks at 180 outdoors you've heard me talk all about them hunt180.com your southeast kansas connection and if you're in the market to own your own property lease your own property a fully guided hunt a semi-guided hunt whitetails, turkeys waterfowl these guys do it all hunt180.com hey you heard us mention They're doing a late season split waterfowl hunt in January. There's still a few spots remaining. And if you're looking for some of the best spring turkey hunting, check them out. You will not be disappointed. And some of the best whitetail ground you can find, lease, own, fully guided, semi-guided, your Southeast Kansas connection, hunt180.com. You know what I think? um, Two two things. First thing I want to say, I can validate um, with a real-world example, even... Even recently, one of the things that you just said, and that, and that's right here in East Feliciana Parish. I have spots that I can. I, I, I've experienced it already this October. I go into those spots on a Wednesday afternoon after work. I ride in there on my side by side. I put some feed out or check a camera, that kind of thing. Within an hour or so, you know, there's deer there, right? Mm-hmm. Now, come, come 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 forward a couple of days. I go into the same spot, perceivably less disturbance. I don't ride in on a side by side. I've got on my scent wash clothes. I'm sneaking in. I hunt the spot and deer don't come back for twenty four hours. Now, to the you know, on on a very on a very like um I guess what am I trying to say you would think that me riding in on a side by side wearing my work clothes and 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 just some boots or whatever not paying any attention to the noise the scent nothing just throwing the feet out checking the camera touching this maybe I cut a limb that I had saw last time I was in the stand you know I'm doing all this and I leave and an hour later the deer are like oh he just fed us and there they come you know they're eating and then I let the place rest I go in there and hunt don't really see any deer and the plate the deer don't come back for 24 hours after i've left to, to your point it is a very clear definition of how of, of how different types of disturbances are perceived by the deer there's no other way to take it in my opinion
1: yeah and any i mean it's you know you guys are asking tough questions you know what about this what about that and i'll be honest with you i don't have the answers you know i am no great deer hunter um you know he, he, they're they're, they're uh, but, you know, I, I, I do believe that there is there's a lot to this pressure. And, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are really good at this. They, and they do it well and they're successful year after year getting these big deer. And they figured out something that, you know, I've never figured out. I just kind of enjoy going out there. And every once in a while I get, you know, I find one that's dumb enough to step in front of me. Yeah. Um, but it's I really think there's something to this pressure. Um, I think there's, I think there's a, a lot to this disturbance, this fact that the, we create disturbance and we don't realize it just sneaking into, you know, food plot hunting, where, do, you know, if it's a rainy day, where do we, where do we slip into? We go into the food plot because it's, 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 covered. Um, if I'm running a little bit late, I drive into the food plot. If I'm taking a novice hunter, I take them to the food plot and we create a ton of disturbance on food plots um you know i think those are those can be tough places to hunt by the end of the season um i I, I just think you know hunters hunter success will go up significantly staying away from you know regularly hunting stands and just paying attention to what they do and kind of tweaking their patterns ever so slightly
2: I, i think the the thing that i would say to you about it and and i and i mentioned it briefly early on in the in the conversation what what is so interesting when we have someone. Like yourself, um, from your field of study, is while we all know that there's an exception to every rule, and you know every different scenario with property and and hunting style and all that creates all kind of variables that skew, and nobody really has the answers. The perception that you gain from approaching things one way is is obviously very different from when we ask these questions of, of of someone who has been exposed to a scientific controlled study, you're looking at it from a different point of view. And while it may not be an answer, so to speak, it's, it's more information that we would all be wise to, to, to heed and consider. And I, and, and one of the other things that I was going to say was I, I think one of the one of the worst things, I've, I, I, have a, I have a turkey hunting podcast that I do in the spring. And I'm a really big turkey hunter. And one of the things that I say to people all the time, it's kind of like one of my little cliche things, is nothing in the world makes a worse turkey hunter than a stupid two-year-old early in the season. Because you don't learn anything about what turkey hunting is really all about if one of your first times you go out, you catch a dumb two-year-old bird that will really just respond to anything and doesn't act like what a, a an educated, mature gobbler acts like most of the time. And so, what I'm getting at with deer on that is uh, this information that you're giving us is, is 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 invaluable. And because if we compare it to our experiences and we try to, you know, look at all those variables for what they are and and make a logical uh, opinion about them, I think one of the worst things that happens is somebody has an experience that has a variable they're not considering. In the same way we don't consider how we might be disturbing the woods, you don't consider the fact that, well, I'm going to discount that that information because last time I went, I saw the same buck from the same stand three times. Well, the weather pattern, the rut, all those kind of things may have made that deer do something dumber than he normally would. But that's not really the the full picture that you should take into account in the – over the whole season over your entire strategy as a hunter that is you were fortunate to be there on a day where a deer was absolutely in love and did something he wouldn't normally do and so if you want to relegate yourself to flipping a coin and hoping you're just lucky then so be it enjoy the woods but while you don't have necessarily the and i'm doing the air quotes now kyler answer you're providing information that we should consider that would make us a better hunter a to z not just that you know moment that happens hopefully if we hunt enough it happens to us you know every season at least uh, occasionally where we experience the exception the exception is not the rule the rule is what makes you a more effective hunter all the time not just i'm gonna do it enough that i eventually run into a weather day or i run into a deer acting in a certain way on a certain day and i get that opportunity but i just bang my head against the wall the whole time until that happened and then Again, I think that the problem that that creates is we use that as a point of education, and it's really not. It, yeah. If I make any sense, it, we didn't really. No. Well, you just got lucky. You didn't really learn. You you didn't just defy the scientific data or the you know the 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 things that we've learned over a, a big big picture, long period of time, you just were in the right spot at the right time. And then we start to take that to gospel and we start to hunt that way. And we stop paying attention and it makes us less effective over a larger, longer period of time.
1: It's, I, I think you made a lot of really good points there. And it's number one, it's, it, it's really hard. It, it's, we, it's a good thing. We really enjoy it because it's really hard to be successful, to put yourself in that position to, to get that one deer. Um, you know it's you know some of us just want to get out there and get a deer um but those of us that really th- those individuals that take it really seriously and want to get that one or two um it, it's 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 challenging particularly with a bow. and anything you can do to tick your probability up a few points you know c- could can go a long ways i think that's 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 one thing Number two is, you know, and I would say to all deer hunters, and I've got a family full of them and friends and, you know, interacted with thousands of deer hunters over the years, is we have, as, as, as another deer hunter, we are very bad about thinking that we are really knowledgeable about deer, um, just because, you know, we spend time in the woods and this and that, and we are knowledgeable about deer compared to somebody that's not a deer hunter generally. But there's, there's, I've heard there are many, many things that deer hunters think that are just simply not true. Um, Just because, you know, grandpa told you or you saw it one time or you see these deer on your camera. um, I would, I would encourage deer hunters to be, to be open to, studies that are based in science, that are based in data, and they may not be telling you how to kill a deer, but they're actually based on factual data um, and trends that I think like, like you suggested that, that people can really learn from them, you know, as long as we are open to looking in the mirror and saying, okay, how can I do a little bit better? Not saying that we're not all, you know, that somebody's not great at what they do, but there's little things that we can learn from, from some of these studies
2: absolutely well that's why we love having guys like you on the podcast because you do bring that perspective and I Kyler I don't remember exactly what what podcast or what conversation this came from but there was a there it may have happened more than once where we've had uh, a a talk and we make we make kind of highlight the fact that as a hunter even if we hunt a lot even if we we're fortunate enough to be able to spend a lot of time in the woods during the season before during and after and we're you know really woodsmen you know someone that hunts a whole lot even if you're that person compare that against the life of a deer who lives there 24 hours a day 7 days a week 365 days a year and you have a very small view of what's going on that you sure. that that you get the, the time that you spend in the woods both scouting prepping sitting in a stand all that in the grand scheme of a thing of things is a very very small window into a deer's world you know so taking that small view that you have and making it making broad brush type of assumptions on general deer movement general deer behavior is not a very smart practice because you don't see the majority of that deer's life so I think the studies that that you guys have done Steve it that's where that's where you guys bring so much value to the deer hunter because you are trying to give us more of a view into that bigger picture that we just don't get regardless of how much time we spend in the field.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's in you know I guess another way to describe this is is you know we go out there and we, we snap some pictures you know with you know trail cameras and we see some deer when we're out there and you know some of our serious deer hunters but you know they stay They may spend hundreds of hours in the woods, a couple hundred hours deer hunting every year, and a lot of time scouting. and And they they really, really do understand the deer on their property, Um, but also understand that these studies, you know, we may have had thirty thousand locations that we use to determine what these deer are actually doing. There's a lot of data, you know, that go into the these things. It's not saying that, you know, it's. I think you you. You know, you said it earlier, you know, there's always an exception to the rule, Um, but just, you know, there's these trends, you know, Monday and Tuesday in general are not good days to hunt. Um, If I had to pick a day that receives hunting pressure, I'm going Thursday. You know, the probability of deer moving on Thursday is going to be greater. And if I've got to pick a place to hunt, I want to pick a place that nobody's ever hunted before, which is easier said than done. But I'm dang sure not going to go sit in that spot that I hunted two days before.
2: It's funny that you say that because I'm thinking back and I'm looking at my property here at home, and I have other properties where I'm pretty confident that I could have a good hunt on those days, but only because I know that there's not pressure in the area. You know, these are highly um, managed properties and places where I know I know the I know that the trend doesn't follow that study, but my property here at home would follow that study well whereas there's a lot of hunting all around my property including on my property on the weekends during hunting season and I can say looking back on it both of the nice bucks that I have killed were on Wednesday morning they were both really? they were both Wednesday mornings where I went to work Monday and Tuesday the weather was good the time of the year was good and I said I'm going to make a hunt before work and even without really any 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 expectation other than the timing's right i haven't been nobody's been out there since saturday and i've got the right conditions and both of them were were wednesday mornings before work and so that's that's very interesting because you could surmise that your data um, uh, parallels that exactly maybe though i may have not experienced that on monday or tuesday because those deer were still being affected by all the pressure from the weekend
1: maybe it's, it's it's possible it's possible i've had a couple of folks tell me you know when we came out with these data that they've started to do this this thursday afternoon thing you know hunting on thursday yeah and they've they've killed they've gotten some deer that they don't think they would have gotten otherwise interesting that
3: is interesting um well lock you were you were kind of alluding to something earlier i think which was um Falls in the category of naysayers or people that always bring up exceptions, um, which is well. Ex- exceptions can also fall under the category of the uh, the straw man fallacy, mm-hmm. which is you know a, a side point that people use to negate the real point that you're arguing. Um, and one thing that I wanted to say because. Um, this is not the first second or third time that we've had somebody that has irrefutable data that they can back up for what they believe and what they're telling us and it it's really interesting to where uh to me that somebody could listen to what we're covering on this podcast and say something like well i killed my biggest buck on a monday he's wrong <laughs> you know yeah. like like just that like that obtuse just uh, awful closed-mindedness where any any outlier negates any uh, raw like years of data in their mind and and so when when I form my opinions in the woods um from my experience I'm always trying to take into consideration things out of my control sample size of how many times I've been and seen the same things or have I gone multiple times and seen something different every single time um out research project in its entirety and not honing in on just one little piece and saying, well, it can't be right because this one little piece wasn't proven right 100% of the time. Um, And where I'm going with this, actually, is something that happened this past week that kind of was very disappointing to me. Um, Dr. Steve, we have a a, a Facebook group called Louisiana Bowhunter Community, and it's got about 8,500 people in it now. It's grown pretty quickly over the last two or three years. And it is, it, it still is, but it used to be an almost like a very supportive, I hate to say this term, but safe space where you could ask any stupid question about bow hunting and you, it would be well received and people would say, hey, you know, do it this way. Try it like this. Why don't you mix and me go out? Just very supportive. No putting down, no naysaying, et cetera, et cetera. We've got um, a guy, a close friend of ours named Ronnie Dugas, and he posted a video of something called laundry stripping have you heard of this it's like a scent free um, or scent reduction tactic for your clothes have you ever heard of laundry stripping no so laundry stripping is um when you fill up a, a bathtub of extremely hot water and you add in uh, a mixture of borax and your scent free laundry detergent and you let it steep and soak for 24 hours and in doing that um you're actually pulling out Sweat, dirt, grime, all sorts of really, to be honest with you, it's kind of gross. It looks like you're, when you're done, backed up, backed up in your bathtub, bathtub because it pulls out so much stuff that I can only equate to being scent, um, in a sense, um, No pun intended at all. Um, that it pulls all that out. And he posted this pretty informative video on how he does this which I've known about, but not a lot of people do. And I had actually done it the week before and had, and and felt, and I I could actually tell that my clothes smelled like nothing. Whereas before they kind of smelled like me, but scent free, if that makes sense. Um, And I guess we're getting a lot of non-bow hunters in the group recently, but people kind of came out in droves saying that's ridiculous or, haven't you ever heard of a washing machine or um, it doesn't matter. The second you touch him again, it's game over. Or my grandpa killed him smoking Marlboro reds and blue jeans, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a really interesting response. Number one, because it's not typical for our community, which makes me think we have people that are not of the hunter mindset. Don't really give consideration to that stuff very often. Number two, regardless of what, weapon they hunt with they probably don't have to get within 15 or 20 yards of deer very frequently um and then lastly um it it was uh, it just wasn't a very good way to, to support each other so anyway i just wanted to kind of throw that out there because that naysaying that i referred to was kind of rampant last week i wasn't a big fan of it
2: yeah and i can see it um and that's why i've, I've talked around it a little bit with this conversation is because it's you know uh i can i can i can see it now where people go well i mean i hear what you're saying but that's not what i experienced so but to the point um every bit of information that we can gather and every consideration we can make um whether it hits us in the face so to speak in in a in a real life scenario or not i mean it just it makes sense to consider the data you know it's it's uh you're not making it up (laughs) it's it's whether it whether it looks like what you experienced the last couple weekends at deer camp or not it's real life data on real life deer and they're not making it up
1: (laughs) so uh it's 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 i think it's a matter of taking you know what somebody else has learned and trying to apply it to your unique situation yeah because everybody's situation is unique you know i i said wednesday or thursday is the best day to hunt if the conditions are right on saturday go on saturday if the conditions aren't right on Thursday, don't go on Thursday. But all things being equal, Thursday's better than Saturday. I
2: I think what you just said, and, it, and it's a good kind of point to start to wrap up, but I think what you just said should be applied to many things. Because I can't, you know, I, I'll go off on a, a small bit of a tangent about something that I've been thinking as I see it online. I see people a lot of times lately, especially with the onset of, onyx and hunt uh hunt stand and these different apps they post a topographical picture of a piece of property hey tell me where you think i ought to hunt in real life i can't tell you that i've never stepped foot on that property i'm looking at a topo map you know so what we're doing as hunters when we when we listen to science studies or when we listen to the stories of our buddies at deer camp or when we compare topo maps of our properties and, um, and data that you've gathered yourself through trail camps, all these different things, all you're really doing is putting one more thing in your pot to try to make the best concoction for your situation. None of it applies apples to apples across the board. But being willing to take all of it into consideration just broadens your horizons and that can't do anything but help. You know, that, yeah. that would be my message to people,
1: but no, I, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm a little biased here, but you know, i I personally believe that a disturbance is the thing that we, that we ignore well, the most.
2: You and I are playing on the same team because that's and and Kyler has mentioned it uh, in a couple of ways so far in this conversation. I, I, I am of that mindset myself in the way that I strategize and the way that I hunt is to eliminate disturbance maybe maybe I don't uh, maybe I haven't laid it out quite the way you have but I I'm really glad we've had this conversation because a lot of the things you said kind of confirmed things that I personally have always just kind of thought myself based off of my own um you know what I've come up with from my own observations and I, I don't know I look at it like this. I know that over years of experience, I know that deer are both an extremely intelligent and formidable opponent in the predator-prey dynamic, and then at the same time, they're also a very gullible, curious animal. And those two different uh, polar opposite traits that they have... Expose themselves to us as hunters in weird ways, unpredictable ways, and I think that that makes for a very cloudy picture. So for me, I try to go with the baseline. The baseline is I'm. I might choose to take a doe. You know, I might choose to take an immature buck. I may be hunting for that with a new hunter or something. But I think all of us would be on some level. I don't know what to call it. Other than lying, but I don't want to call somebody a liar, but on some level we're all hoping for that big mature rack buck that's the, that's the pride yeah you can't eat them horns and yeah you know we all like to, to experience success but at some level when we put our boots on and we go out there we're all kind of hoping the biggest deer around is what we get a shot at right yep. so if if, of if, if I aim for what's the what's the saying if I if I aim for the moon and hit the stars or whatever it is, You know, so that's the deer I'm hunting. Um, I'm going to try to play the odds with that deer. And if if I choose, if that's not the deer I end up taking, so be it. But I'm still going to hunt that way. You know, I it's just like with my son this weekend. We didn't go on that hunt expecting to see that deer. I knew he was in the area, but that's not the reason we went there. But we made an educated decision on where to be, and we were in the right place. And so I think if you just hunt that way all the time, you just in, improve your odds as a hunter. And then if, you know, your decision is, hey, I'm I'm not just out here to kill only big deer, that doesn't mean you should hunt in a in a reckless fashion and eliminate that from your 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 possibilities, you know. But um I'm rambling a little bit. Um I uh I think it's been a great conversation and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and share the study i i was really excited when 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 we found out that somebody had actually done one of these studies because i thought myself like surely somebody that's doing deer research um has done something like this but i i hadn't actually been pointed at that person so thank you so much and and i hope i hope that you i hope that you guys can find ways to to vary this study and get even more data you know maybe drill down in some ways in the future
1: well, you know, I, I enjoy being on here. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, we're we're really interested in, in in continuing to push this line of research. Um, it's you know, as as we have more and more opportunities to examine it, we're we're going to try to. It's just it's, it's 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 challenging to get the right set of data, to get the right sort of conditions, and it's real expensive, as well. And so, but it's neat stuff.
2: Is there is there any is there anywhere where any of this data or information about this stuff is, is listed publicly that people could find.
1: There's, um, we've got a couple of a couple of these studies are on our website. Um, they're not they're not necessarily easy to to point out. Um, you can go to the Auburn Deer Lab website and under the peer reviewed publications, there's a couple, There's one of these studies. The other one is in the process of being published right now. Um, but it, it's 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 kind of difficult to digest in in the scientific form the way it's written up we have uh published some of this stuff and written some articles for deer and deer hunting magazine and so it's possible that you may be able to find some of those on their website um and so in some of the past issues they've been in there
2: okay well i encourage people that are interested in in the stuff that we've talked about to go out and, and search that out and and read up on it we um, i'm sure that there's a that you can drill down a lot more we've we've scratched the surface 30 years of deer research can't be covered in an hour and a half podcast so again we think we we thank you for your time and uh, we appreciate the work that you do and uh kyler you got anything else before i wrap this up
3: no i don't i think uh, i really appreciate you being on and, and helping answer some of our questions
2: thanks guys all right guys hey, hey if you're if you're uh, like kyler and i and you're you're going to be traveling wish you tra- wish we wish, wish you safe travels i know a lot of guys are getting on the road and heading up for their out-of-state hunts um weather's been great i think the hunting's going to continue to be great wish everybody some success go check us out LouisianaBowhunter.com or one of our retailers all around the state, pick up some of our new gear. We're really proud of it, and we would like to showcase your pictures. If you kill a deer or if you just got some cool camp photos with some of our gear, send them our way, info at Louisiana Bowhunter, video clips or pictures. And um, until next week, we will uh, wish you all luck and safe travels, and thank you so much for tuning in every week. We appreciate the support.